welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. This episode, we're joined by Los Angeles Times political reporter Melanie Mason. Melanie is covering the 2020 presidential election, perhaps an understatement to say an election like no other. (laughs) This is not what I thought my 2020 would look like, I feel it's fair to say. So let's get right into it. How is covering a presidential election during a pandemic, during a shelter in place, different? It seems obvious, but how is it different from past presidential elections? You've covered gubernatorial elections. You've covered money in politics. What's different now? Um, well, I think the, the first thing is, is that I'm in my house, which is both kind of a, a logistical sort of change, but it also really, it changes the nature of the reporting immensely. Um, and I, I'll say that I have found it um, so frustrating because at this time that we have, I think just this unprecedented sort of collision of historic news item after historic news item after historic news item. And all I want to do is get out there and talk to people and figure out how we're all processing this. Um, For lots of reasons, I am mostly at home. Um, So it means that you have to be really creative um, and really think hard about um, how we're going to be approaching stories. And I think that the other thing that's different for me is because I feel like we are in this unprecedented era, I think some of the things that we could consider sort of the the go-tos of political reporting, um, we can't take those for granted anymore. I mean, even just calling um, political experts and consultants and folks who have run for campaigns for a long time, um, who are tremendously helpful and are brilliant and have great insights, part of me thinks when I talk to them, like, well, what do you know about this? You've never run a campaign during a pandemic. Uh, so that's, and I say that with all due respect for my, for my very smart sources, but it really um, underscores how much I think we have to be very humble about what we're walking into because there is no playbook for this. Um, you know, maybe there are political reporters that lived through 1918 who, who um, you know, could share their insights, but even then you would, would not be necessarily having the same kind of economic and also racial justice implications that are also going on. So this is so singular that it makes it a, a entirely unique reporting experience. So how much of your reporting is informed by when you used to be able to go to the big rally or the stump speech? I assume you'd heard the stump speech probably you know 10,000 times. So the only difference is how people are responding to it. How much of what you would write about was affected by what the people were telling you at those moments? Uh, a lot. I think that there's so much to be said about being in the room, not necessarily even about the candidate, but as you said, about the people that, um, that how they're responding to the candidates. Uh, and you could see how candidates would evolve over time. So for the primary, for example, um, I covered Senator Kamala Harris. She was really my main focus. And I could watch her sort of mature as a candidate as the primary progressed. And in some ways, you know, she would get better in some areas and in some ways that she, she wouldn't. But I would, I would sort of determine that not so much by what I thought about her, but how was I, I was watching the audience respond to her. And so you can't get that just from watching on uh, cable news and getting sort of the words of the speech. Um, it's so much more about the feel of a room. And the other thing that I think is 
um, underappreciated is how much there's an element of serendipity when you're out reporting in the field. You really kind of have to keep your mind open to anything that you could sort of consume when you're out there. And a lot of times that takes you far away from the campaign rally, especially because a lot of the reporting that I did, not a lot of it was quote unquote on the bus. So I wasn't necessarily following a presidential candidate you know, for four events in the road, I had a, a little bit more leeway where I could go to an event, but then I could hang out somewhere or I can meet up with a source somewhere else or, or um, meet somebody at a rally and then go to coffee with them and meet their families later. And it, it brought in my worldview and sometimes would take me outside of the immediate reporting question, which would be, you know, how is Kamala Harris doing at this particular rally in Iowa? And I would start having conversations with people about, you know, ag policy uh, or trade or things that didn't have to do with the story I was writing at that moment, but could absolutely inform my coverage later on. It's what we're all losing right now and what we're all missing right now in a way. I mean, it's obviously incredibly important for your job, but those moments of serendipity. I mean, for me as a lab professor, it's not being able to walk into my students or my colleagues in the hall and have the conversation that leads to the planning the new class or planning the new conference or planning the new article. You lose that kind of spontaneity of interaction. Um, one of the things you talked about was so interesting is you got to watch the evolution of the candidates. And you said you thought Kamala Harris got worse in some ways and better in others. If it's a fair question to ask you, and I know it's based on what you saw in terms of audience response, where was she improving? Where was she getting worse? I think that what I got to see of her more, what I'd always heard about her, and remember I had come from Sacramento uh, before I moved on to the national beat. So I covered her a little bit in the in the context of state politics. Um, and what I had always heard is that she was really great in, in the room, in smaller groups of people. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's hard to translate when you're out in a big, big rally. Um, and one of the things I think that was a benefit of me being able to follow her and also just what presidential candidates have to do in terms of really hitting retail when it comes to these small states like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, is I got to see her interact with individual voters in that same way that maybe political officials, um, you know, personal friends, donors had maybe gotten to see her, you know, in the past. Um, She's really, really effective in the one-on-one. She's a very tactile politician. She would sort of grasp people's hands. She has killer eye contact. Um, And you could see her really sort of command a, an individual, um, uh, interaction. Uh, I think where she struggled and a lot of candidates struggle. I mean, I think the, the best, uh, example is Barack Obama who started out, um, as not a very good candidate. We all sort of forget that. Yeah, um, it's so true, <laughs> but he was, he kind of, his stump speech was a little flabby. He would sort of go on and on. He's somebody, I mean, you know, when he, he, he obviously knows a lot, but he also felt it was important to say all the things all at once. And there's only so much that audiences can absorb at any one point. You know this, I'm sure, as a, as a professor. Um, and so I would see there would be times where her stump speech would feel a little rambling. Um, and then she would go through phases where it would tighten up. Um, and that's where it would become you know, more effective. But I think that that is probably still something that uh, if you talk to her or you talk to her advisors in a moment of candor, they, they would say, you know, she could probably have, have performed better. I mean, it's, it, it is an impossible job to run for president. I think that's what, you know, we should say for everybody, right. You're expected to perform at, at, you know, at at a plus level all the time. And I mean, I certainly couldn't do that, but that was something that I had noticed uh, when watching her. And I would say for um, other candidates as well, she was just the one who I probably had the most one-on-one time watching. 
Well, it's an impossible job, and the job is running for office is different, it seems to me, than the job of actually being president. But I know you've had a view like none of us will ever have in terms of following presidential candidates and seeing what makes them work. So I, I asked this question for Kamala Harris, but more generally, what do you think makes for a good presidential candidate? What works well for audiences? And is that is that too broad? I mean, should we really say what makes for a good presidential candidate in Iowa and New Hampshire? And is that totally different from what makes for a good presidential candidate in California? I th- well, that's a great question. I think the a, a good political campaigner in those different states, um, I think, is, is a really good question. But I think about uh, in terms of a presidential candidate, and there's a, like a slight distinction there. Um, I think that in any state across the board, what I found to be the most effective is having a coherent theory of the case, why you're mm-hmm. running for president, what is driving you. Um, and I think that the the most successful presidential candidates on the Democratic side that we saw this cycle all had that, um, whether it was Elizabeth Warren, who I think probably had um, the most comprehensive theory of the case. And because of that, you could see she'd be get thrown, she'd get thrown questions that weren't necessarily Um, things you'd consider in her wheelhouse or things that were in her stump speech, and she'd be able to answer them quickly, decisively. Uh, And I think that's because she had a worldview that she knew and she felt comfortable talking about. Bernie Sanders is another really excellent example of that. Um, And I think Joe Biden was another very good example of having a theory of the case. He really had a cohesive theory about what the American electorate wanted at this particular time. And it turns out that his was, was right, because I think that you'd, you saw that this, um, this appeal to normalcy returned to normal, even though that, that has shifted a little bit now in, in COVID, and we can talk about that. Um, but I think he really tapped into what I see as an exhaustion of the American public. Um, and he did kind of promise this idea of Hey, here's somebody who you know me. You know that when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think you're going to think about is not what did the president do overnight, um, and and we're going to to get this car back on the road. The the metaphor that I used a lot in the primary when I would talk to people is one of you know different theories of what you wanted to do with the car that is the country. And every Democrat had this theory that the car's in a ditch somewhere and and, and in bad shape. Um, but what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were saying was. Get you know, vote for me, and I'm going to take this car to the next destination. We're going to go really far in this car. And Joe Biden was vote for me, and we're going to get the car out of the ditch. We're going to get back on the road. And I think a lot of Americans really wanted to get back on the road. I love this idea of thinking about the theory of the case. And you're right; it has to be a consistent worldview. I never could have articulated it this way, as opposed to my worldview is I really want you to vote for me. You know, right. <laughs> my worldview <laughs> is. These, you know, these are my morals. These are my beliefs. These are my policy proposals. Something more consistent than what would you like to hear from me, which does seem to be the failing of a number of candidates. I was just going to say that exactly. I mean, look, the most famous flub, right, is not being able to answer the why are you running for president question. Um, and I also think a lot of Americans uh, are pretty cynical about their politicians and do see um people's ambition as being maybe the driving reason. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with a presidential candidate or a politician in general being ambitious uh, because you have to have that ambition to want to be in this job. But that ambition has to be to an end that's not just 
so you could sit in the biggest chair, right? The ambition has to, to be so that you can finally accomplish whatever your worldview is. Um, and I think that that the most successful candidates, and Donald Trump in 2016 was also very effective at this, right? You knew what his theory of the case was. Um, and it, in some ways it was so um, stunning because it broke a lot of political laws or laws that we thought at the time were political laws. Um, but he's, he did have a, a fairly consistent theory of what the American electorate wanted. He did. And in a, in fact, in a way that was perhaps more open and transparent than any other candidate we've ever seen, you just said he broke a lot of laws. What were the biggest norm-breaking, kind of political candidate norm-breaking moments for President Trump? Uh, I think it was, to encompass it broadly, it was saying the inside part out loud. Um, yes. yes. He, he, it, American political tradition... Uh, there's a long history of very subtle appeals to uh, racial grievance, to class grievance, uh, to gender, you know, to grievances between the genders. But a lot of times that was really subtext. And I mean, if you want to call it dog whistles, whatever. And so that the people who who knew what they were listening for and wanted to hear it could hear it. What Trump did is he just, he did away with subtext and everything became text. And I think that when we heard it, we thought, well, I mean, you can't, you can't say that stuff out loud. Um, but he did. And yet that, that didn't impede him. And you could argue that maybe in some cases it it led, um, to parts of his success in 2016. I think that what we're at, what we're trying to figure out now in what is a different environment and, um, quite frankly, a different candidate. I mean, he is not a challenger anymore. He is an incumbent. Um, so the question is, is like, do those laws sort of revert back? Um, does Kenny continue to break them? And I think that's still very much up in the air. Um, but I think that that's probably the biggest way that he um, dumbfounded a lot of political reporters because we were used to maybe hearing hints of those grievances, but never so explicitly stated, at least in modern political history. I, I remember having a number of conversations with uh, you or your colleagues or I should say you and your colleagues, where I gave some version of a quote that says, you don't survive this. And it would be, you know, you don't survive saying about uh, Senator John McCain that I prefer people who aren't captured uh, during war. I prefer people who got out safely. And I thought this is the end because John McCain is a war hero. And you're exactly, I love this idea of thinking about it as subtext becomes text. And I used to say, you know, you're, you're not using a dog whistle, you're using a bullhorn. But whatever you think of President Trump, he didn't hide the ball. I mean, everything was very transparent. And I know that you have, you're, you're a journalist, so you have a different perspective. I can say uh, that's the thing that I found arguably most terrifying about candidate Trump, that um he has been incredibly honest about who he is, and he continues to show that um, every day. But I want to I get back to another area that you're an expert in, which is you mentioned this briefly, that you were in Sacramento and you covered money and politics. And this comes back to the issue we were talking about, which is what makes a good presidential candidate or what makes a good campaigner. And you made a distinction between those two things. How much of being a good candidate depends on being a good fundraiser? A lot. Um, and I think that that I, 
as somebody who is going at my core is always going to be a money and politics reporter because it was my very first, first beat here at the LA times. Um, so for every story, I want to know what's the money angle. So I, I don't want to say this is in a way that makes it sound like I'm downplaying the importance of money. Um, but I will say that money Money matters more the closer you get, the, the further down the ballot you get. And I actually think that, that especially in presidential elections, where there is, um, yes, being an individual fundraiser is, is hugely important, particularly in the primaries where you would see, you know, candidates really being judged on their viability by how much money they could raise. Um, but I think generally there is such a crowded and robust media market around the presidential campaigns. Part of the reason why you need to raise money is because you need to be able to introduce yourself to a lot of people very quickly. And the way that you do that is through advertising, right? I mean, that is such, that is the biggest bulk uh, of campaign spending. Um, there are a lot of other players that are in this field now, outside groups. Um, and there's also the media. Um, and the media takes a lot of forms, whether that's broadcast and cable news, newspapers like the LA Times, um, or social media. Um, and so presidential candidates don't lack for exposure. Uh, and because of that, I think that money has less of an of, of an impact of of tilting a race than it would in campaigns where candidates are lesser known. Um, and that's where you can see sort of a real you know differential in money um, making a big impact. I mean, if if the incumbent, if Donald Trump outraises Joe Biden by let's say like thirty percent, just to throw a number out there. I don't think that that's going to make a huge difference in terms of people's knowledge about Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. But if you went to a city council seat uh, or a state legislative seat and there right. was a 30% fundraising differential, that could be the ball game right there. So I think I think a lot of times now we pay almost too much attention to the vast, enormous sums of money that are being raised at the presidential level with good reason because it is so much money. Um, but I almost think we're missing the real story, which is money's influence uh, further down the ballot. Yes. I mean, so obviously down the ballot, it's almost your only way to reach people. And as you said, presidential candidates will always have that platform. But do we use it, and you mentioned this a little bit, do we use it as a rubric for viability? So, and is part of the, you said, uh, you know, I think we're missing the bigger story perhaps, but the more we talk about it, doesn't it kind of become like a self-fulfilling prophecy where we talk about what a prodigious fundraiser Joe Biden is or how he's ahead or behind? And are we almost using it for a proxy for viability and polling where based on what you're saying, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we're just overplaying its importance? Yes. I mean, it's an it's absolutely an imperfect metric. But I would point out that in the primary, Joe Biden wasn't a very good fundraiser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was actually people who excelled in grassroots fundraising, Bernie Sanders, of course, being the real standout. Um, and I mean, he is he, I think, really has tapped into a model um, that I think, you know, more candidates are trying to, to replicate. Um, it, so the, the thing about about raising money, particularly in um in the primaries is that all of the candidates were playing basically by the same sets of rules, right? You had these certain limits, um, uh, contribution limits for individuals. Um, there, I, I don't believe that there were, there was, there were super PACs that existed for various candidates, but I don't think that they were, um, particularly decisive one way or another. Um, so, you know, was money, you know, did, did, 
did money give Joe Biden the nomination? Well, it, it clearly didn't because he was not the strongest fundraiser um, in the race. But Joe Biden also had a lot of other things that we were using as a viability threshold, right? He had name recognition. He had the fact that he was a former vice president. Um, you know, if you talk to the staffers on presidential campaigns of like, let's say the second tier of candidates, um, they really struggled with the fact that money was seen as one of the thresholds to reach the debate. There was just an enormous amount of time um, devoted to fundraising and not just sort of the closed door, high dollar fundraisers that I think a lot of people think about when they think of the corrosive impact of money in politics, but even the online grassroots fundraising, if you're not somebody like Bernie Sanders, who already has an extensive list and a real operation that's built up um, to mine those voters, you know, that takes a lot of money and infrastructure to build. And if you are a shoestring campaign, um, that's that's very difficult. So yes, I do think that, that there is... I think the DNC, uh, the Democratic Party, did the best they could in trying to wrangle what was an incredibly unwieldy field. And I thought that the way that they focused on number of donors and the dispersion of donors as opposed to like raw totals um, was a more fair way to do it. But it was certainly imperfect. I couldn't think of a better one, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other um, sort of metrics that exist. Yeah, it does seem to me like it's now almost a badge of honor where you have to say, I'm funded by grassroots donors. And so it's straight, there's this weird tension where all the candidates want to raise a lot of money really quickly, but then they also want to say, I'm not supported by quote unquote big money because that's this pejorative, scary thing. Instead, and we had this with Elizabeth Warren with, uh, with Bernie Sanders, where they were touting so heavily, I'm the grassroots candidate. And it, it feels like that's part of the narrative now. I'm the, you know, will the real grassroots candidate please stand up? And that's certainly, from my view, kind of shifted over the last decade a little bit. But one thing that really has changed for me, and I'm wondering when you were covering um, when you were out there more, not from your house covering the presidential campaign, where are most people getting their information on the presidential race? Because if I talk to my students, it's not TV, it's not the radio. They do, you'll be happy to know, still read the newspaper. Thank but, you very much. <laughs> but it's a lot of online. And how will that change the face of campaigning, if at all? It's a lot of micro-targeting, a lot of social media ads, a lot of you know, favorite website ads, it's not so much these big television and radio ad buys. Are you seeing that change on the ground too? When I was talking to voters, and I'll say in the Democratic primary, because that was when I was primarily out there, it varied immensely by age, right? I mean, that was the biggest change. And I would say um, people in, let's say, like middle-aged and higher, it still felt like um, television, particularly cable news, um, was a dominant source of, of information on the uh, on the campaign, and they would read newspapers as well. But I think that they focus on um, on online outlets um, seems to be more concentrated among younger people. Um, social media concentrated among younger people. But my experience when I was covering candidates is that they still saw. Um, cable news as sort of the brass ring and when they were trying to, in, in terms of access, in terms of trying to, to get their candidates on the air. Um, and I think a lot of that is because um, they, they see ripple effects from that. So yes, if you look in the raw viewership numbers, it's not like a ton of people um, are watching 
cable cable news, but there is a repetition effect. And I, I think that there was, at least for a time, a pretty close job between sort of TV impressions and where people were on polling. Um, and I think that campaigns did pay a lot of attention to that. Um, one of the things, though, that I think is really important is because this media landscape has become so fractured, the really savvy campaigns were realizing that they had to make outreach um, all over the place. And I would say in particular, was when we were thinking about the Democratic primary, um, if you weren't talking to black media, then you were missing um, a huge electorate and 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 really sort of <laughs> the, the campaign would be sort of failing uh, themselves. And in fact, we saw certain candidates um you know, have a, get a really hard time from black media personalities for not participating um, either in radio mm-hmm. uh, or in online outlets, because I think that there is this um, understandable expectation that black voters being such a backbone of the primary electorate um, for Democrats, particularly in key states like South Carolina, um, that there was a real expectation that you needed to go and meet that audience where they were. Um, and I would say the same with Spanish language. Um, and you saw that there were certain campaigns um, that were better than others at trying to court Spanish language television. Um, so I think that that this is certainly not new to this race, but it's just increasing, you know, ever more, particularly as the as the establishment media industry gets so hammered um, by the economics of it all, um, that a campaign that does not have a media strategy that really looks at um, various communities that you're reaching, niche media. Um, you know, Pete Buttigieg is the perfect example. I there's there's a website that I read. It's called The Strategist. It's part of New York Magazine. It's a shopping website. It's basically like product reviews. And Pete Buttigieg did a story of things I can't live without and like really prosaic things. I think he was like, I like these uh, earbuds um, or I really like this protein bar. Um, But it was brilliant because it was coming and reaching the audiences where they were, people who were not explicitly looking for political content. There he was. And that campaign really took who was this guy who was this basically unknown mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and turned him into a media superstar, much to the chagrin of a lot of other campaigns that would say, oh, it's only because the media gives him so much coverage. The media gave him so much coverage because they said yes to everybody and would go everywhere. Yeah, he right. He was super accessible. I hear, which is different uh, than what I heard about some of the front runners. So I want to turn now a little bit from the campaign to the administration, and to get a little insight from you as a national political reporter. What has it been like to cover politics over the last three and a half years? That's unfairly broad, I know, but it, has it been like anything that? you've seen in the past? Is it just all Trump all the time? And then you have a little bit of time for some other stories, maybe, but does he really just take up all the oxygen in the room? He takes up a tremendous amount of oxygen in the room. And I should be clear that um, because I'm based in California and we have a fantastic Washington DC bureau, um, it's really it's really our folks in DC who um, have to deal with the day-to-day kind of deluge of, of news. And I, I'm in awe of them because it's exhausting to, to watch. It's exhausting to consume. Um, and I actually think that one of the benefits of living in California, um, I lived in DC for, for well, 10 years. So I, I know sort of what the what it's like to live right in the, in the eye of the storm, um, not this particular storm. Um, but it's, there are so many things now being out here in California that I used, I joke, like it doesn't cross the Rockies. Like it just gets screened out (laughs) by time zones, uh, and people not caring so much. Um, so everything that registers for me as a political journalist is something that matters 
to my friends and family here in California, I feel like is a, a third or a fifth of what people are talking about in DC, um, which yeah. just goes to show like how much I think there is out there. Um, but I think that what's incumbent, even if you're not covering the day-to-day about this administration, uh, if you're covering politics, you're covering how this political figure touches or affects every aspect of the political landscape uh, in this country. And so even even as I was out in California, in a, a very blue state, a not very Trumpy state, um, Trump was was just omnipresent, and I think it was it, it is hard to imagine having one political figure cast such a long shadow over the entire political landscape like Trump has. It does seem, and yes, obviously, I'm talking to you from California as well. But on the state level, on the national level, it does feel like Trump all the time. And even if you think about what's happening in California, where in a way, the epicenter of the resistance. And we have an attorney general who just uh, very recently, I think, filed two lawsuits in one day against the Trump administration. So obviously, as you said, this one political figure just loom very large. And another unfairly broad question, what are we missing? What are some of the things that you would love to cover, but uh, you just have to chase, I don't want to say chase the news cycle, but there's always kind of breaking news, perhaps directly or indirectly coming from Washington. Are there some things that you wish we had more attention to that you wish we were looking at a little bit more closely? I think that if we had a little bit more breathing room (laughs) between monumental news stories, um, some of which it feels like are happening three or four times a day, um, we would have a little bit more of the ability to do some of the accountability follow-up that happens from some of these decisions. Uh, and I want to be clear, I, I think that there is tremendous accountability journalism that is going on right now uh, around this administration, um, both you know from the LA Times and, and, and other media outlets. So this isn't a knock on them. I think that there, but that this is a sense that um, there is so much that every everything that happens, deserves re- a real deep dive into how it got there. And I feel as though we just, because of a sh- we're a shrinking industry, don't have the capacity to do the deep dive follow-up to every single um, uh, decision that is made. And I'm thinking particularly about a lot of the regulatory moves that are being made out of, yes, um, yes. Out of the executive side. Um, and again, there's been, th- what we do know and the stories that have been done are tremendous, but it also points out to me that I think that there is a lot more there um, and if you're not one of the major newspapers or major television networks, um, you know, we're in an era where, where resources are really, really shrinking. And so we have now basically concentrated this burden of accountability follow-up on just a handful of outlets. And I don't think that's sustainable generally. And I really don't think it's sustainable uh, in this particular political moment. So, um, and, you know, I say this as somebody who whose job on, as a you know campaign reporter is not necessarily um, with an accountability mandate. Um, there's certainly some scrubs and backgrounds that we do of the presidential candidates, and I've done those this cycle. But that's not necessarily my beat every time the environmental agency peels back a rule for me to say, okay, I got that one. Like that's not my job. But I think that um, in an ideal world, I would find a way to marry more accountability journalism into the coverage that I'm doing. Well. Thank you for drinking water from a fire hydrant for us for all of these years, because it does increasingly feel like that's what you and so many of your 
colleagues who are doing really heroic jobs have also done. And with that, loyal listeners of the Passing Judgment podcast know that we always ask, end by asking our guests the same three questions, because I just learned, I've been an observer of politics for a long time, and I have to tell you, I just learned a lot. And now we want to learn a little bit more about you. So first question, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I feel like my answer should maybe be a little bit more highbrow, but no. Um, but in all honesty, and this is, and she's not lowbrow, but I, I would love to have dinner with Nora Ephron. Um, she's, um, she is one of my favorite writers. Um, she was an amazing journalist, but a lot of people know her now or know her as a screenwriter. And of course, unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. Um, and she is actually one of those people who is in this more than anyone else, I think, like, I miss Nora Ephron. I wish I knew what she would be, like, could be writing in this time. Um, her books are, like, comfort food for me that I return to. Uh, any of my friends who are going through tough times, they always get a copy of Heartburn from me. Um, and I just think that a dinner party with her would be hilarious. I think she'd make amazing food. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's a lot of political figures and historical figures that I'd love to interview. But if it's somebody who I'd want to, like, hang out with, it's definitely her. Oh, I love that answer. I know I'm not supposed to really weigh in, but her writing was like a warm embrace. And I, I think yep. we need this right now. And I would love to have her take on, as you said, on what's happening. And I know that she would take a critical eye, but we'd also feel a little bit better at the end of it. Now, next, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? <sighs> um. Okay. There's just nothing better in the world than like a perfect hamburger. So I think that's it. I think it's got to be a burger and fries. You'll get some protein. You get your starch. I think that that'll keep you balanced for then when you have to like spearfish or whatever you do once you're really stranded. Um, but yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, like give me a perfect burger or give me death. Last, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? So I think as a reporter... I mean, all you want is to be able to read somebody's mind. Um, And I think that that would be actually pretty terrible if that was like permanently something you could do, because I think that really delving into people's minds could be a little bleak. But for an hour um, where I could really just sort of get past the BS with with people that I'm interviewing, um, I think that I would really enjoy that, knowing that there was also a a hard out (laughs) where, where I wouldn't have to do it anymore after that. Yeah, I don't want to know all the time, right? Sometimes those white lies are what keep us going. Exactly. All right, Melanie Mason, thank you for passing judgment with us. You can read Melanie's articles in the LA Times. I do. You can follow her on Twitter at Mel Mason. Thank you to our listeners for being with us for another episode of Passing Judgment. Please listen, subscribe, rate us. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thanks for spending another episode with us. Mm-hmm.